in the book of Nahum. So uh, how, many, how many of you have ever heard a message on the book of Nahum? Right? That doesn't get preached on very often. It's one of those little books, three chapters long, and it sits here, oh, in the Minor Prophets. Uh, Nahum is one of those books you're like going, it's not very, very long, how can you preach on three, three chapters of Nahum? But Nahum is, uh, is kind of the second half of Jonah. We all remember Jonah, right? And, and he told this, this whole great story of, of running from God because he was supposed to preach to the Ninevites and, and got swallowed by a great fish and spit out on the shore and made a 600-mile trek to Nineveh, preached, and everybody repented. Great story, right? The problem is, is we don't read far enough, and when we get to Nahum... Jonah wrote in about 750, 760, 750 B.C. Nahum is writing in about six, most theologians put him between 663 and 612 B.C., about 100 to 125 years later. The Ninevites have gone so off the rails that God says you're done. I gave you a chance to repent, and you repented, but it didn't last very long. Therefore, the title, Time is Not on Your Side. And of course, all of you are probably going, I, that sounds familiar. Because you grew up listening to the Moody Blues, right? Time is on your side. No, it's not. Right? Yes, it is. It's what the song says. But time was not on the side of the Assyrians. Nineveh was the capital of Syria. Assyria. And time was not on their side because the farther they got from that moment of repentance, the worse they got until God says, I'm done. I'm going to take you out. There will be no sign of you. And just so you're aware, from 612 B.C., until 1847, people didn't believe Nineveh existed. They couldn't find traces of it. Matter of fact, the early theologians, uh, liberal theologians, thought that Jonah was a big tale because there was no sign of Nineveh. This great city, 600,000 people, 60 miles across. We can't find it. And lo and behold, in 1847, guess what they found? The city of Nineveh in what is today outside of modern-day Mosul, Iraq. And they began to dig, and guess what? It's a huge city. They, a lot of the the archaeologists believe that at one time probably a million people lived there at one point in time. It was considered to be one of the greatest cities on earth, but it disappeared because God said, I'm done. It's over. And so we come to the, the book of Nahum, and we're going to uh, put him in our timeline as we've been following. Nahum's right there about six 
uh, you'll see the, the red box that has uh, the northern kingdom going into, uh, into captivity, and then you'll see the book of Nahum. And Nahum doesn't write to uh, the, the people of Judah, particularly. He is there to give them comfort. Because Nahum, in the Hebrew, means comforter. And you're like, oh, what? You're preaching that you're going to wipe out all of these Ninevites, and that's supposed to be comfort? Well, these Ninevites, they've already taken the northern kingdom into captivity. They have already, by the time he's writing, they have come down, or during the time that he's writing, they're going to come down and they're going to put uh, Jerusalem in siege. We're going to see all of that today. And, and during this time, Nahum is writing to them to comfort their hearts that God is still in control. And one of the things that Nahum does is in the first chapter, the first eight verses, Nahum describes the character of God in such a way to say, I want you to understand why God is judging the Ninevites. I want you to see the character of God within who he is means he has to judge the Ninevites because of who he is. So let's turn to Nahum chapter 1 and let's read the first eight verses. Nahum chapter 1, the first eight verses. The oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversary, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. The clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He drives up the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Mountains quake because of him, and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, and the world and all the inhabitants in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness." Well, verse 1 introduces us to what it's about, the oracle of Nineveh, this great city. And secondly, it introduces us to Nahum. Now, who was this Nahum? It says he's an Elkoshite. Well, Elkosh, the, the, the Elkoshite part, we, 
We know that it's a common name and there's cities named by that all over the place. So we don't really know where to put them. But there's an interesting thing about where he might have been raised is Jesus had a place that he called his kind of his, where he would go back to called Capernaum. Well, in Hebrew, that is Karnehum. Karnehum, meaning village of Nahum. So some believe that that's where he came from. I don't know. Does it matter? It doesn't really matter. Because he is preaching to the, the southern tribe of Judah. And he's, giving, he's saying, listen, the Ninevites have been a pain in your side for so long, and I'm finally going to take care of them. And to do that, he introduces us to the character of God. And he starts out in verse 2 with, God is a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy, what do we think of? The green-eyed monster, right? We get jealous when somebody, somebody you know, flirts with our loved one, you know, it's like, Wah! you know, the claws come out. We want to protect our loved one. And we look at jealousy kind of from this, uh, it's ours. But Jesus looks at it a little bit differently. God looks at his jealousy differently because what God is looking at is he says, I don't want you flirting with the devil because I want the best for you. And the devil is nothing but an imitation. He's a counterfeit. He's not, he's not even second best. He's a counterfeit. And the world is a counterfeit. Isn't that right? It don't, does, doesn't the world want to, to uh, draw you away? They don't want you to be part of God, do they, Chris? No. They say, that's baloney. Here, buy more stuff. Just watch the commercials. Buy, this, this cologne will make you a better person. Right? You know, use this, use this hair, hair styling. You know, they want you to, something else to satisfy, but only God satisfies. As a matter of fact, when God set down the Ten Commandments, where did he start? In Exodus chapter 20, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or the earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting iniquity on the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. He says, yeah, you can make idols, but they're, I'm the one that created what you're fashioning them into. I made the materials that you're using to make your idols. It's second best. I don't want second best for you. 
And so we have a jealous God. The next thing he said, he is a God of vengeance in verse 2. He says, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. God says, my job is to take out those who want to hurt my children. You know, and, and he's still in that business today. If somebody tries to attack you, attack your character, say, you, you know, uh, you, know you, you Christian, what are you, what are you doing? You don't deserve this job. We have, we have people in this church that have been denied jobs because they're Christians. And you know what God says? Don't worry about it. Vengeance is mine. You see, we look, sometimes we look at vengeance from our perspective. Boy, I want to get them for what they did, right? Well, that, that comes from a root of bitterness normally. We say, I, they, I'm going to get them back. That's the way we look at it. But God says, no. Vengeance is what they deserve for what they did. You see, anytime you go after God's people, God says, uh-uh. You may get, get away with it for a short time, but in the end, God says, vengeance is mine. I will take care of it. See, we want to take care of it ourselves, right? Romans 12, 15, 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. He says, don't worry about it. You see, the, these poor folks, they've already been through a siege and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. They had been through a siege in which Sennacherib had come and surrounded the village, or surrounded Jerusalem and wouldn't let them in or out. People were starving to death. They were eating their own children. There, there was nothing for them. And he says, don't worry about it. I've got this covered. I will take vengeance on them. Matter of fact, God actually used the Assyrians to bring King Hezekiah to a point of repentance, to return to what he knew was right. He says, vengeance is mine. But next he says in verse 3, that he is a God of mercy. The Lord is slow to anger. Aren't you glad Aren't you glad the Lord is slow to anger? Aren't you glad that he has mercy on us? Oh, man, because if we didn't have the mercy of God, where would we be? In Isaiah, he says to the Israelites in, verse, in chapter 63, verse 9, in all of their affliction, he was afflicted. The angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his mercy he redeemed them and he lifted them and he carried them all the days of old that's who God is he's a God of mercy he says listen you guys were stubborn not that Christians are ever stubborn right 
Now, none of us have that streak in us. They grumbled, they complained, and he says, but yet, in his love and in his mercy, he redeemed them. He brought them into the land. And he redeems us. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Can I hear an amen? Okay, thank you. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's what we have. That's the mercy of God that we receive the day we come to him and said, I'm a sinner. Thank you for what you did on the cross for dying for my sin. Now I want you to be Lord of my life. And he shows us that mercy here. We are saved by grace and we are raised up with him. Now I think there's two paces here. One, we're raised up when we come out of baptism. What do we, we're raised in newness of life. So we have a new walk here. But look what else he said. And he seated us with him in heavenly places. The moment you get saved, he says, I've got your new address written on your house up here. It's ready for you. And when your time is up and I call you home, you're going to have a place in heaven. It's guaranteed for you. So that in ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. When we get to heaven... Do you realize what you're going to get to see? Do you realize that God's going to say, listen, you you trusted me as your Savior, and yes, you have a place there, but I want to show you what happened because you came to know me and because you served me because of what you did, and he's going to begin showing you all of the things that he did through you here on this earth. We're getting ready to do shoeboxes. We're going to send 500 and some shoeboxes all over the world. When we get to heaven, those little kids from Guatemala, maybe grandma and grandpa that got saved because we sent a box to Guatemala or Ecuador or Africa or Asia. All of those little kids, they're going to come up they probably, they may be adults by that time, but those people are going to come up to you and say, thank you, Eastside, for sending us those boxes because I found Jesus in that box. The surpassing riches of his grace will be there in heaven when we get there. Well, not only is he a God of mercy... He's a God of great power. Have we, can, have we evidenced that in our world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we go back to the Old Testament. He's a God of power that created the universe, right? 
But he's also the God of power. When, they were, when he was leading the children of Israel out and they came to the Red Sea and they say, we're done for, he put the, the, the pillar behind them and he said, Moses, go over and touch the sea. And it parted. And they walked through on dry ground. And then as soon as the Egyptians got all of their chariots right in the middle of the Red Sea, what did he do? He collapsed it on top of them. And we could look over and over and over again. He describes his power all through these next few verses. He says, he talks about a whirlwind. And he talks about the clouds of dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up rivers. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. He sends, he sends drought the mountains quake because of him and the hills dissolve. Anybody remember looking at Mount St. Helens when it was a mountain? And what happened to the whole top of that in a matter of seconds? It's gone. It is spread literally all the way around the world. When that plume hit the jet stream, it literally went around the world. It dissolved. The power of God now, I'm not saying that every time we have a hurricane or every time we have an earthquake that God is judging somebody, but he does. He has used his power in nature time after time after time to get our attention. Isn't that what Matthew chapter 24 says? He says there's going to be earthquakes and there's going to be all, all of these natural disasters that are going to come. Why? They're the birth pangs of the tribulation of God that's coming. He has great power. And he shows his power. It also says that uh, God is good. Don't ever forget this. Why, why do you, every Sunday, it's not a gimmick that I get up here and say God is good. How often? All the time. Because that's a fundamental of our faith. God is good. God is good even in the midst of turmoil. You know, last week we heard about Haiti. And we saw how terrible the conditions are down there. There's, there's cholera that are killing people. Starvation is setting in and killing people. We see all of these things and you say, well, is God? how can God be good in all of that? And yet the church, the Emmanuel Church in Port-au-Prince, they started holding revival meetings. And people are getting saved. And people are getting baptized because they're sitting here looking and saying, this, can't, this, this is God's judgment on us. And we need to come to him. We need to repent. What does Romans 8.28 says? Romans 8.28 does not say all things are good, does it? What does it say? All things work together for good, work together for good for them that love God and them that are called according to this person. See, God will work good in your life even through the midst of terrible things. Even through the midst of cancer. Even through the midst of, of having things in your life, financial setbacks. God will work those for good if we, what? We have to obey him. We have to trust him 
in that time. He is good, and the second half of that verse says what? He is our refuge. He's our refuge. You see, when things are bad, we have to go to the, to the rock. We have to go to Jesus. We have to run to him. He's our refuge. In Psalms 18, 2, I mean, it's one of, one of many verses in the, old, in, in the Psalms. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's where we go to hide. We go to the cleft of the rock and he guards us there. We are in the hollow of his hand and he protects us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Because what do we do? We fight and we try and we do everything in our own strength. And then when we've exhausted ourselves, we come to Jesus. And he says, you know what? I was here all along. I never left you. I never forsake you. You could have come to me at any time and you could have saved yourself a lot of blood, sweat, and tears if you'd only come to me for your refuge because I am your refuge. Nahum gives them all of these wonderful qualities and there's a couple more in here we're not going to go to today. But, but he, he said to them, listen, you may think God's not interested in condemning Nineveh. They keep coming back. But God says, listen, I, have, I, I will take care of them. You let me do this. Vengeance is mine, right? Well, I want you to know that Nineveh ran out of time. Remember I said in 750 B.C., or thereabouts, Jonah came and he preached. And it says they repented. You remember that back in Jonah chapter 3? And when God saw their deeds, they actually did something about their repentance. It wasn't just spouting out a few words. I'm sorry. Don't kill me, God. Their deeds showed their repentance that they turned from their wicked ways. Then God relented concerning calamity, which he had declared he would bring on them, and he did not do it. God says, I'm going to give you a second chance. Jonah came. He gave you the story. He, he gave you the, the announcement of my judgment. You repented. You have a second chance. But it didn't take them long before they went back to their old ways. Because what happens if when you repent, you don't turn around and say, hey, God, okay, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to serve you? How do I do that? No, they kind of got hooked back into their old ways. You know, one of the, one of the things that always bothered me about uh, our prison system is that we have people that they get 
they go to prison, and when they come out, you know where they send them to? Right back to the place where they, where they did the crime. That's where they go back to. Well, guess what? Who's there? They're old friends. Their drug dealer is still there. Those friends that, that they used to commit crimes with are still there. And who do they go to? Because when they get out of prison, you know what they have? They have a prison ID and they have a check for about 200 bucks. That's what you get. And you go back to the same place you, you came from and then you keep doing the same things you did. And that's what happened with the Ninevites. In 740 B.C., 10 to 20 years after he had that Jonah had preached and they had repented. 740 A.D. You know what they were doing? They were back raiding the, the northern tribes. As a matter of fact, in 1 Chronicles 5, 35 and 36, it's talking about the tribes that are on the east side of the river. You remember those guys? Reubenites, Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh? They didn't want to cross over the river. They said, this looks really good to us. We want to stay over here. God says, you can stay over there as long as you come over and fight, which they did. And they went back. But, but what happened? Because they couldn't get across the Jordan River most of the year. They could only get across when the water was down and they could ford across to go to Jerusalem to, to be part of the rest of the nation. And look what it says in 1 Chronicles 5, 25 and 26. But they, the, these tribes on the east side of the river, but they acted treacherously against the God of their fathers. And they played the harlots with the gods of the people of the land whom God had destroyed before them. So the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of Pul, the king of Assyria, even the spirit of telgath Pelenezer the king of Assyria. Yeah, it's not a beer. I've always wondered about, I don't know, it's spelled different. And he carried them away into exile, namely the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and brought them to Hala, Haba, Hera, and the city, and the river of Kozan to this day. 740 B.C., we know that's when it happened. 10 to 20 years after they had repented, they're doing the same thing they did before. And they attacked God's people and hauled them away. Well, they weren't finished because then in 722 B.C., they say these two and a half tribes are not enough. We want to go after the northern kingdom because they're closer to us. And in 2 Kings 17, 5 and 6, it says, And then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Hala and Haba, uh, Harbor, 
and the river of Kozan and the cities of the Medes. 722 B.C. They came in and they wiped out the northern tribes. And the northern tribes never regained any of their land. They were scattered. And the Ninevites, the people of Assyria, were the ones that were responsible for that. But once again, it didn't stop there. In 701 B.C., the Assyrians decide there's still Judah and Benjamin left. So they go to Jerusalem. And in 701 B.C., they set siege to it. And you can go to 2 Kings 18. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And, and you, you can read this whole story. It's about a couple chapters long. I suggest you do it. 18 and 19 of 2 Kings. Because Hezekiah, they, I mean, they're sending letters up and saying, we've We've conquered all these people around you. Who do you think you are? That you can stand against the God of the Assyrians. And there's a whole interaction that goes on between Hezekiah and these Assyrians and Sennacherib. And Hezekiah prays. He says, oh God, we have sinned. And he repents, and God says, okay. And, and Isaiah, Isaiah brings the message and says, okay, tomorrow, you've been sitting here under siege. You're eating your children. The, the price of barley is, is many, many days' wages for just enough to make enough bread for one meal. You're starving to death. But tomorrow... Tomorrow, it's all going to be available because I'm going to take care of you. And I want you to look at the way God intervened. In 2 Kings 19, it says this, And then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead and so Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home, and he lived at Nineveh. A hundred and eighty-five thousand in one night, gone. God says, it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And indeed, the Babylonians will come later, and they will capture those two tribes, haul them off. You can find that in the book of Daniel, book of Isaiah. It talks about it. But there's one more piece of the puzzle for the Assyrians. In 612 B.C., about 125 to 150 years after they had repented, God says, I'm going to wipe you out. The Babylonians and the Medes come together and they attack Nineveh. 
Nineveh is said to have walls 100 feet high. You could ride chariots three wide across the top of their walls. There was no way to get around them. Every so often they would have towers come up to where their soldiers could hurl things down on top or shoot their bows down. They tried and tried and tried, and they couldn't capture Nineveh. They couldn't find a way in. And a Greek historian, Thesis, writes in his records that in 612 B.C., the same time it was being sieged, there was a flash flood that took place in the Tigris River. Now, if you remember us talking about where Nineveh is, where Mosul, uh, Iraq is today, the Tigris River comes down, and the, the walls of Nineveh, actually the river flowed into it and through it, so they always had a water supply. Guess what happened when the flood came? It took the wall down. It knocked a portion of the wall down, and the Babylonians and the Medes came into the town, and they destroyed it, and it says that they burn it to the ground. They burn it to the ground. Now, I want you to look back at a couple verses in Nahum, because Nahum is gone by the time this happens. Nahum 1.8. But God... But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end to its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And then I want you to look over at chapter 2, beginning of verse 6. And the gates of the river are opened, and the palace is dissolved. It is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. Her handmaidens are moaning like the sound of doves beating their breasts. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water through her days, now they are fleeing. Stop, stop, and no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to their treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. She is emptied, yes, she is desolate, she is waste. And historians tell us that when the, when the king saw that all was lost, he went into his treasury and he set it on fire around him. And everything that he had plundered from all of the nations that he has conquered was burned and melted. And the Babylonians... And the Medes came in and carried it all off. Until 1847, when an archaeologist went, started digging outside of Mosul, and began to find the great city of Nineveh. All of those years. Nahum knew it. Nahum said it was going to happen. What happened to them? They ran out of time. You see, God says he won't always contend with men. See, God sends warning and warning and warning. And, and sometimes people have even come to, 
come to a place of repentance and then they forgot God? And they've run off chasing the world and looking to see what's out there? And God says, no, 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 no. I'm a jealous God. I want you back. I want you to walk with me. I want to be the only God, not the God of the world. And he calls us and he called them back and called them back and finally said, time is up. And that's what God does for us. He calls us. He wants us to walk close to him. And he says, come on back. Come on back. I'm a jealous God. I'm a merciful God. I'm slow of anger. I want you back. And he calls us to himself. Revelation 3, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That verse is not about evangelism. It's not about somebody who doesn't know Jesus as Savior. It's for us. Sometimes we shut the door on God. And he's not going to kick that door in. He's going to stand there and knock until we open the door. And when we open the door, he says, what? I will come in and sit down with you. I will come in and sit at the table with you. And I will sup with you and you with me. Well, we're going to come to the Lord's table now. We're going to come to our communion time. It's a time to remember, right? He says, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And I think sometimes we forget. We get so caught up in the world. We get so caught up in our lives. We get so caught up in this little thing called technology. We're busy. The tyranny of the urgent that we forget where we came from. Remember that long list that we sang? We're in there somewhere. We're the thief, we're the sinner, we're the lost. Whoever you are, wherever you are within that, and God says, remember, I want you to go back and remember. And if the Ninevites would have gone back to their time of repentance and said, God gave us a chance, what are we doing? God would have spared them, but they didn't. They got sucked right back into the world.